This is a podcast from BFM 89.9, The Business Station. Throughout history, diverse cultures and individuals have exhibited unique attitudes towards death, often accompanied by an inherent fear of the unknown. But should we fear death? I'm Dashan Johan and this is Today I Learned. Joining me on the show today is Sandy Clark. He's a licensed counsellor and trained in existential therapy. Welcome to the show, Sandy. Good to have you back. It's always a pleasure to come back. So thank you for having me. As always, Sandy, i got to start with the easy question. What is your view of mortality and death? It's always good to start with a bright and breezy <laughs> discussion. I think that my view begins with the fact that both of these things exist. Mm. And that might be a very obvious statement to make. But at the same time, I think it's something that we all too easily uh, deny. And I, I think it's important to mention that denial to a degree is is a healthy aspect of human nature, right? So uh, if you think about when we go through grief, denial is a part of that process. And although sometimes that's seen as a problem, denial acts as a protective force which prevents pain that would be otherwise overwhelming um, from sort of crushing us, right? So it sort of allows us a bit of breathing space. The problem is that when denial becomes prolonged or excessive, uh, where we sort of deny the reality of, of, of whatever might be coming, then it starts to then it starts to cause us issues in terms of how we live life. So I think that with mortality and death, for me as, as a practicing Buddhist and in someone who grew up in the Christian church, I think what it gives me is a sense of, um, I mean, this might sound a bit sort of uh, sort of Hallmark right. <laughs> style, but it's it, it just it, it reminds me of the sort of preciousness of things like relationships, right. of experiences. Certainly, as I, I I get a bit older as well, a lot of people have this sort of negative perception of of death, uh, of mortality, um, or whether it's a fear or or some sort of negative reaction to to that. But I think a lot of it is fear. Um, why do you think that is? There's a a chant that you might hear if you attend a a, a Buddhist talk, uh, you know, with monks and nuns, and I think the beginning of which I probably don't have this verbatim, but the beginning of which is something like, "All that is mine, loving and pleasing, will soon be otherwise." Hmm. As in, you're going to lose it at some point, right? And it's it's that sort of existential fear that, on some level, even though we sort of distract ourselves and we uh, try to live life in such a way that distances ourselves from any um, idea of decay or growing old or dying. Um, on some level, we all carry that that recognition that our time is finite. And and actually, maybe we'll cover this later. But actually, that, that that's a good thing that mm. time is finite for us, uh, in my opinion. Uh, but I, I think it's it's fundamentally this idea that we have this very strong survival instinct and just the idea that um, you know at some point we are going to stop existing at least in this life is a terrifying prospect for some but we we even sort of um show this in everyday life right so we don't like to say goodbye to to loved ones if we have not seen them in a while maybe if right. i go back 
to Scotland on holiday, visit my family. I know that that goodbye to come back to Malaysia is going to be really painful because mm -hmm. there's that sense in me that, you know, is this the last time I'm going to see my dad or see my family? So on some level, we have this kind of existential dread that, you know, whatever we are doing could be done for the last time. And so we just spend our entire lives, ironically, distracting ourselves, but to such a degree that we often fail to sort of tune into the stuff that matters. Absolutely. So, you know, earlier when I asked you the first question, one of the things that, that immediately you brought up was as a practicing Buddhist, um, you, you mentioned that. So are there cultural and societal factors, especially cultural, um, that influence our attitudes towards the death and mortality? I mean, if we look at cultural uh, factors, some cultures, for example, will uh, try to avoid using certain phrases or certain numbers mm -hmm. uh, that have a connotation to death and dying right. uh, with the belief that if you talk about death, if you talk about dying, it will sort of bring it closer to us or it will visit us. Uh, so again, that that's a measure of trying to sort of deny the reality of, of kind of keeping it at bay, which can, again, to a degree, be a healthy thing because it allows us to live because if, if we constantly thought about the fact that at some point in a not too distant future um, that our life is going to end, you wouldn't get out of bed, <laughs> right? You would just you you would not face the world. So we need a degree, you know, we need the cultural um, norms and beliefs and the religions and everything else that helps to sort of um, uh, psychologically insulate ourselves from from this reality. Um, from societal perspective, we can see it in things like we. Uh, celebrate youth and we celebrate vitality and fame and everything that's that's seen as energetic and 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 full of life um whereas we sort of tend to shun things that remind us of uh you know the sort of imminent ceasing to exist you know right. like we don't we don't really celebrate old, old age in the same way as we celebrate youth um we're always chasing new things we're always trying to upgrade up uh, update ourselves um, buy the new device um, push ourselves towards success we try to accumulate wealth and status because psychologically that keeps us healthier uh, wealthier and at a much uh sort of greater distance from from death as we think um but the, the, the reality of life is that so much is uncertain. None of us, whether you're the youngest, richest, most desirable person in the world, uh, is free from the, the sort of chance that, that, that life throws at us, uh, that something might happen to, to sort of, you know, end our time here. I, I mean, I wasn't around at the time, but I would imagine the, 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 the very first sort of um, uh, humans who stumbled upon language and, and able to sort of create stories and 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 sort of create ideas and with their imagination on, on in terms of how things are in the universe um when they confronted death and loss and grief i can imagine that they would have had such a difficult time to um to sort of comprehend that loss right that of course you would start asking questions about okay, what happens once someone dies? You know, if, if we accept that everything is sort of intricate and in, interconnected in the universe, um, and certainly if we accept from a, uh, the sort of law, of law of physics that, you know, energy can never be um, created or destroyed, it can only be transformed. 
Um, what, what happens? Where, where, where does that go? And I think over time, certainly spiritual beliefs, religious beliefs have perhaps evolved. And again, I'm just speaking from a Christian and, and Buddhist perspective, um, that they evolve to give us some sense of, 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 you know, how things might be once we die. And therefore, it pr provides a sort of psychological, again, a psychological insulation that that perhaps this isn't the end of the road once we leave this this physical life. Um, and certainly, I think that having spiritual religious belief can bring you that comfort that perhaps after death, as painful as that might be to lose a loved one, uh, you might be able to see them in some form uh, in the next life and beyond. And, and certainly when you contemplate um, the, the sort of profound nature of some of these um, religious texts like the Bible or like the uh, the Buddhist sutras and so on, then they, they can definitely provide a lot of comfort and a lot of hope for people. Uh, and again, it comes back to this idea of if we didn't have this thing in place where we had this kind of psychological insulation in, in various ways, um, it would likely be far too overwhelming for us to contemplate, or may maybe it wouldn't be, I, I don't know, uh, maybe we would find some way to sort of normalize and adapt. But I think the very uh, the, the, the very fact that so many people in the world, and even atheists and agnostics will have some sense of uh, being able to reconcile their loss. Uh, it's quite a natural desire to try and make sense of, of, of how we can cope with the death of a loved one now that they no longer exist in the physical sense. As someone, you know, in the field of psychology, how does existential um, psychology and also philosophy address and help individuals navigate this fear? How, how do you do it? So the, there's three um, existential thinkers that I, I tend to focus on mm -hmm. when it comes to dealing with this kind of question. So the first comes from the French philosopher, Albert Camus, mm. who wrote a, a quite a short book called The Myth of Sisyphus. Right. Uh, try saying that 10 times fast. Um, and <laughs> uh, he, he basically, his thesis essentially uh, is to say that from his perspective, uh, life is absurd. Right. And it, we have no control in the greater scheme over what's going to happen. Uh, and, and he said the most serious question in philosophy is essentially you know, what's the point of carrying on? What What is the point of living? You know, we, we need to sort of address this this question. It's the most important question. Um, but in his book, he, he, he writes that um, if I admit that my freedom has no meaning except in relation to its limited fate, then I must say that what counts is not the best living, but the most living. So it's not trying to find a meaning of life, but sort of creating meaning in life. Uh, Kierkegaard had... Uh, in his book, Either Or, so this is the Danish philosopher uh, who, who died um, at quite a young age, but he was a very prolific writer. So he had this metaphor in his book, Either Or, which uh, says, uh, a fire broke out backstage in a theatre. The clown came out to warn the public and they thought it was a joke and they applauded. And he repeated it and the acclaim was, the acclaim was even greater. The applause was even louder. And Kierkegaard says, I think that I think that's just how the world will come to an end, a, a, to general applause from um, sort of halfwits who believe it's a joke, right? right? Which kind of pertains to this idea of, you know, we're, we're kind of constantly denying reality. We're constantly thinking that things are never going to happen to us. 
Um, and the, the, the third person uh, that, that I that I am a, a huge fan of um, is uh, Irvin Yalom, who's a right. sort of famous existential psychotherapist and uh, psychiatrist as well. Uh, he's now retired, but he was the uh, a professor of psychiatry at Stanford. And in his book, The Schopenhauer Cure, which is one of my favorite books of all time, uh, he writes, every breath we draw wards off the death that constantly <laughs> impinges on us. Ultimately, death must triumph, for by birth it's already become our lot, and it plays with its prey only for a short while before swallowing it up. However, we continue our life with great interest and much solicitude as long as possible, just as we blow out a soap bubble as long and as large as possible, although we, with perfect certainty we know that it's going to burst. Right. So it's it's this kind of sense when you're working with people, certainly in existential therapy and so on, you're you're working with people to address those human limitations that we all have, regardless of your stage and status in life. Right. But what can you do with that time? What can you do with what you have in order to sort of live a life that's meaningful, that's purposeful, that's rich and, and gives you a sense of joy while you have this time that you have? On the show with me today is Sandy Clark. He's a licensed counsellor trained in existential therapy. We continue this discussion after the break. Only on Today I Learned, BFM 89.9. Welcome back to Today I Learned. I'm Dashran Johan and on the show with me today is Sandy Clark. He's a licensed counsellor trained in existential therapy. And we're talking about death and how we all die in the end, and why that should be liberating rather than paralyzing. So Sandy, one of the books that I'm reading right now, and I, honestly, it's, it's one of the most fascinating books I've, I've read in a while. Um, it's called This Life, Secular Fate and Spiritual Freedom. It's by the Swedish philosopher Martin Haglund. Um, and in Malaysia and other regions, I'm not too sure why the book is called This Life, How Mortality Makes Us Free. Now, one of his arguments, or it's one of his principal arguments in the book, and, and I quote, is he says this, to keep faith in mortal life is to remain vulnerable to a pain that no strength can finally master. Mortality is not only intrinsic to what makes life meaningful, but also makes life susceptible to lose meaning and become unbearable. The point is not to overcome this vulnerability, but to recognize that it is an essential part of why our lives matter and why we care, end quote. Sandy, what is your take on this thesis? Well, I'm going to sort of um, be a bit more lowbrow and uh, respond <laughs> to that by uh, quoting a, a favourite line of mine from right. a, a Netflix series called Afterlife. I don't okay. know if you've watched uh, the series, but there's there's a really nice sort of line that, that complements what you just read out there. Mm -hmm. And... It's the scene is uh, so the afterlife for people who don't know the premise of the show uh, that the main character has has lost his wife and he really struggles to come to terms with that loss and he becomes deeply cynical about life mm -hmm. and one of the people he he meets along the way is this um, uh, older lady at the cemetery where her husband and his wife uh, are buried right and so sitting on the sitting on the bench uh, at one point she turns to him and says. Happiness is amazing. It's so amazing. It doesn't matter if it's yours or not. 
Uh, it's that lovely thing. Wow. A society grows great when old men plant trees, the shade of which they will they know they will never sit in. And good people do things for other people. That's it. That's the end. Mm-hmm. And coming back to, to your quote, in order to allow joy and happiness and goodness, kindness to flourish, we have to sort of come to uh, uh, an acceptance of, of vulnerability in life. We can deny it. John Fredrickson, who's, a, who's a, an American psychotherapist, wrote a, a great book. It's called um, The Lies We Tell Ourselves. And in the book, he, he mentions, um, I, I think he says something like, um, we can deny reality all we like. Uh, reality is always happy to wait until we're ready. Right. So it's going to be there. Right. So we, we spend an awful lot of time and you, you see this with kids as well. They're often encouraged. Just smile. Just, you know, keep your chin up. Don't cry. Don't show any emotion. And it's one of the worst things you can do for kids because they grow up and they don't learn to appreciate, understand, process and integrate their emotions. Right. But when you become vulnerable, when you allow yourself to become vulnerable, which is never a weakness, is always a strength. Um then then you start to get a sense of why lives matter, why your life matters and why we care. Because every single person on this planet, unless there's some miracle technological advance, but in sort of one and a half centuries time, nobody in this planet is going to exist as, as whoever is currently alive, right? So you could take that point of, you know, what, what, what's the point in life? Why, why do we keep existing? What's the point to carry on? Well, because we are sharing this space, that we are here together enjoying this human experience, and we can spend time closing ourselves off emotionally, psychologically, um, spiritually, or we can find ways to connect with each other, to to make better societies, to to have an influence in our communities, to make a change in our small corner of the world, and know that by the time we come to leave this existence, that we've done something that really hopefully has ripple effect uh, to make the world just that little bit better, that little bit kinder. Would you say that life only has meaning because there is that? Uh, again, I'm going to refer you to a Netflix series, <laughs> which you know, I think answers this question quite well. Mm-hmm. So this is a, a series I've watched three or four times. It's called The Good Place. And it sort of addresses this this kind of question. So I, I'll ask you in the form of a question, actually. So mm-hmm. it, it did give me a sense. I mean, maybe you have two or three options, but if you could eat one of your favorite foods for your entire life mm-hmm. without any sort of, you don't have to pay for it, you don't have to worry about it running out, what would it be? My mom's mutton curry. Your mum's mutton curry. Yes, right? I don't even have to think about it. Some people have asked me, and it's always that answer for years and years. <laughs> it was so quick. You've just earned yourself some brownie points. Uh, well done. Uh, no hesitation. So imagine, you know, I was to say to you, so let, let's consider these two examples. So imagine mm-hmm. I was to say to you, okay, you and your mother are going to live for 150 years more. Right. And you're going to eat that mutton curry Every single day, right? Mm-hmm. So that's the first scenario. Right. But if I was to say to you, um, you know, because the mutton's running low or, you know, your mother's found another speciality to cook, but next week is going to be the third last time that you're going to eat that mutton curry. Mm. Like, how would, you, how would you experience that mutton curry knowing that you only had a few more times to eat it compared to you have 
all those years left still to go. I'll probably eat more. I will appreciate more. I think I would, yeah. you know, savor every bite that I take. Yeah. So I, I think in the same way, death and, and again, the, the good place really does a great job of, of answering the question. Um, what if we could have everything all the time forever that makes us happy? Mm-hmm. And the answer that they come up with was um, we would actually be so numbed and so apathetic and so dulled um, because life is made meaningful by the fact that it is finite. Mm-hmm. And although none of us wants to to meet our death and we don't tend to like to think of our mortality, doing so actually, if you can learn to do it, um, you can actually be much more attuned to your life. You appre- like you, you mentioned, you would appreciate much more. You wouldn't take uh, people or the things that make life worth living for you uh, for granted as much. Just to um, quote another book, uh, uh, there's a, a professor at Harvard Law School who I, I greatly admire. His name is Michael Sandel. Oh, yes, I love him. Uh, yeah, he's a philosopher, professor of yes. law at Harvard, and he wrote a really, well, he, he writes quite a, a number of uh, uh, important books, but he wrote a book called The Tyranny of, of Merit. Merit. Yes. Um, I just read that a couple of months ago. <laughs> ah, there you go. Great minds read a line. Um, and and in, in the book, he says that the, the meritocratic ideal is not a remedy for inequality. It's a justification of inequality. Mm-hmm. And I, I think that w- when we talk about meritocracy, for example, it's this idea that, you know, you work hard, you sort of get to where you are and, and, and you deserve that, right? Which if you look at anybody who, who has any kind of success, um, chat, you know, it, without exception almost, as far as I can think of people uh, like Elon Musk, Steve Jobs and whoever else, right? Um, all of those people grew up with a great deal of privilege. All of those people, there's, there's, a, there's a concept in existential thinking um it's called uh thrownness and it's this idea that you're kind of just thrown into the world right. you have no say whether you're born in the uk malaysia canada yemen and it's it's just your luck where you're born and and how you're raised within the circumstances that, that you're raised so we can kind of develop quite quickly this mindset that you know everything i have i've worked for and anybody else who hasn't worked as hard as me um, they deserve their lot. You know, right. They're not. They're not deserving of, of of much help. But if the tables were turned and you grew up where they grew up, and 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 vice versa, then you would struggle just as much as them. So I, I think that sometimes we can we can be too much in a hurry that we forget to stop and 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 help others and and recognize the common humanity in others. Uh, in the book that I'm currently writing at the moment with my friend and colleague, Dr. Eugene T, which mm-hmm. is called The Tyranny of Speed. Uh, in the first chapter, we cite an experiment that was done in 1973 at Princeton Seminary uh, College. And they wanted to check what what factors uh, sort of, w- what makes a good person, basically. Right. Uh, so they, they set up this experiment whereby um, a bunch of people who were training to become priests, uh, they, they were told that they had to fill out a form and then go to another building to, to present a talk, right? And some people were told they had plenty of time. Some people told they were uh, just on time. Some people were told that 
um, they they were actually running late. So in the in the path between these two buildings, there was somebody who was lying on the floor clearly in pain, and and they actually had to step over this person in order to ignore them. Uh, and they found that even with the people who had time, hmm. uh, I think it was something like forty five or forty six percent of those people still just stepped over the person and sort of ran off. You know, right? So so we we can get too caught up in our our um, own importance when it comes to thinking about time and the, the sort of the, the finite time that we have, the finite resources that, that we actually kind of forget our common humanity, that it's really important to slow down and recognize that, you know, when you're rushing on, on the, on the road toward a meeting in your car and, and somebody, you know, cuts into your lane, you know, well, maybe they're in a hurry. Maybe something's wrong in their life. Maybe they're, you know, suffering in some way. So, you know, are, are we able to just kind of slow down and kind of recognize, right, hold on a minute, you know, we're sharing this road, we're sharing this time and space and place. Uh, can we be a bit more understanding? Can we be a bit kinder um, and a bit more compassionate toward others? Um, recognizing that every single one of us has our struggles and every single one of us struggles with this idea of, um our finite time. How can the understanding of our own mortality influence our relationships um, with each other, be it friends, family, um, you know, your, your romantic relationships, or even just relationships with people you meet um, in passing and so on and so forth? So there's a, um, a, a really wonderful uh, sort of video. It's like an audio description uh, from Sam Harris, mm-hmm. uh, uh, you can find it on YouTube. It's called uh, The Last Time. And in this, I think it's about four minutes long, uh, people can listen to it. And in this short description, he talks about this idea that we take so much for granted um, that we're always going to have, we're always going to wake up, we're always going to see our loved ones, we're always going to eat our favorite foods, we're always going to turn up to work. Um, but he makes the point that at some point, and you're not going to know when this is, everything that you do is going to be done for the last time, right? And I think one of the examples he uses is when you're a, when you're a parent, um, there is going to come a time when your kid hugs you and kisses you goodnight for the last time, not because maybe they, they've died, but because they've grown up and suddenly it becomes awkward and now they've become a teenager and they don't have an interest to do that anymore, right? Mm-hmm. You're going to lose that connection and you're you're not going to know why. And this applies to pretty much anything that we do, right? There's going to become a, a last time that you, you and I have a conversation, right? right. Um, and as sad as that is, having this appreciation for mortality for um sort of finitude of 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 what we do hopefully that gives us a a, a sort of richer sense of appreciation a richer sense of you know i'm going to just really be present as much as i can to this experience um the the conductor of the boston philharmonic orchestra is a guy named benjamin zander and i would really uh, recommend people watch his ted talk he's a an eccentric and brilliant uh, old guy and uh, <laughs> and he, he during one of his talks he said that he I think he was quoting somebody and he said um, is the last thing you say to or could you um, tolerate the last thing that you said to somebody uh, could you tolerate that as being the last thing you ever say to them 
or could you tolerate that that's the last thing you might ever see, you know? Right. So again, just kind of bringing into focus this idea that, look, we take a lot for granted, right? And and, and in some ways that, that makes sense because the brain's not geared to uh, sort of pay attention to every single detail. We, we, we couldn't manage that, right? But what we can do is we can tap into the 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 really important stuff in our life so for example let's say you're having a conversation with your kid and you might feel yourself going to react in some kind of negative or hurtful or, or kind of spiteful way or you're going to criticize them see if you can catch yourself and just say you know is this could this be the last thing that i say to this person would that be fine by me that if that was the last thing i said to them right um and of course, we're not going to get it right all the time. We're human beings. Right. We are going to make mistakes. We are going to get it wrong a lot of the time. But it's helpful just to be more aware of this stuff so that life becomes much more vibrant and much more rich in terms of, do you know what? The people I have around me, the the things and the privileges I have around me, um, these are something to be appreciated. There's a wonderful line in a film that I can't quite remember the, the title of, and um, somebody says, uh, oh, why, why do the people here seem so happy all the time? And comes the reply, um, because they live life like it's a privilege, not a right. Wow. I think that's a perfect line. Absolutely perfect. Now, on that note, right, and you also mentioned earlier taking, um, taking things for granted, um, a lot of religions um, focus on the afterlife, right, Sandy? Um, it could be heaven and hell. It could be reincarnation, um, so on and so forth. Um, some religious um, beliefs focus on salvation. Um, some focus on, like, the ultimate form being some sort of, like, detaching yourself from all the worldly things and, and things like that. But one of my favourite stand-up comedians is um, Bo Burnham. And one of the most powerful lines from one of his songs um, goes something like this. Um, you pray so badly for heaven, knowing any day might be the day that you die. But maybe life on earth could be heaven. Doesn't just the thought of that make it worth the try? Um, I think about this verse a lot, Sandy, and I don't see this verse necessarily as a critique of prayer, nor do I see it as a sort of libertarian cry to YOLO, you know, that, that sort of thing. I see it as a form of spiritual outlook as well, but dedicated to the people and the planet and that we must work together collectively to sustain this heaven. God gives us the gift of life and we spend our lives praying for a bigger one. <laughs> Um, I, I think Yalom in, in his book, The Schopenhauer Cure, he he writes a line that's something like, you know, when, when man comes to reflect on his life, um, he realizes all the things that he was disappointed by were just his life right. because he was always hoping for something better. He was mm -hmm. always hoping for something greater. But by the time he gets to old age, he realizes, do you know what? When I was in my 30s and 40s, <laughs> when I was in my 50s and I had my kids growing up and I had my grandkids, that was the heaven. That was the thing I should have been appreciating at the time. Now I'm too old. I don't have this thing. My kids are overseas. My grandkids don't visit as often. Um, so, I mean, that, that quote that you shared, you know, that this life on earth, I I, I wouldn't say, I mean, I, I don't mean to dismiss suffering and, 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 right, and things absolutely. like that, but even, even in the past century or so, things like abject poverty, Poverty has been eradicated, you know, across 50% of the 
right the, the plan, in a sense you know we are making you know progress there's there's much still to be done but for most of the people who are listening to this life despite our problems and struggles is pretty good you have food you hopefully have you know a, a nice home you have family you have friends you have um, the ability to talk to people to see things how incredible is it when you walk through i don't know a botanic gardens or you see a vast vista of you know uh, uh, like a beach or you know the, a clear blue sky and all that stuff um we have that heaven right here on earth and and i think that to constantly try and focus on the afterlife it really detracts from where we are where we are living now the difference that we can make the the legacy that we can create the love and the kindness that we can share and that that might sound a bit pretentious but if we think about it you know if we have a a very sort of bubbly barista or or um, someone who gives us a ticket like a cinema usher or something and they say something nice to us they they have a smile on their face all of us know that that simple experience can make or break our day, depending on that other person's mood, you know. So can we have that awareness, I think, is the question that we are very fortunate. I think in his book, Unweaving the Rainbow, um, Richard Dawkins, the first line is something like, all of us are going to die and that makes us the lucky ones because most people never get to exist and this, you know, sort of leads me to to the second core of the Martin Huglund's book, um, which he talks a lot about democratic socialism. He, he argues that, um, and I quote, the point of democratic socialism is to sustain a form of life that makes it possible for us to own the question of what is worth doing with our lives, what we value individually as well as collectively as an irreducible question of our life. How would you see it? The, the second president of the United States, John Adams, um, in a letter to his son, who I think became the, he, he became the fourth president or the fifth president, um, he wrote a letter to his son and it said something along the lines of um, the reason that we toil in the, in the farms and, you know, in, in the sort of, uh, in the elements is so that you can study the arts and enjoy the, you know, mm-hmm. all the finery of life and, right. and, and build a better life for yourself. He was making this point that, you know, it, it's 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 almost a moral imperative that, um, you know, this this idea of sustaining a form of life mm-hmm. so that it makes it as possible to own the question of what's worth doing with our lives and also how we can then sort of uh, have that as a ripple effect whereby the, the efforts of our fruits make it more meaningful, not necessarily easier but more meaningful more enjoyable more rich for 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 the the generations that that, that come and 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 i think that perhaps that's ultimately the 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 greatest form of love that we can the collective love that we can share in a way um to have that sort of democratic socialism to sustain life in such a way that we can think about what's worth doing what's worth um building and preparing for our own generation um, so that the other generations that come might build on that because the world is always changing right when you and I uh, grow to if we get to that point in our 60s and 70s we are going to be in a world that we don't recognize because times change and you know as young people come up in the world then they start to shape the world 
in, in, in their image in a sense. But what they will have borrowed from us is the stuff that we, the, 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 the trees that we have planted, uh, the, the shade of which we're never going to sit under, right? Um, and I and I think that's something worthwhile keeping in mind that we we all uh, th there's been 117 billion people estimated to have existed ever in the world, and in some small way, all of those people have contributed to where we are now. So and, and I think that's 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 something that's quite valuable to to keep in mind that we we're all a part of that fabric. I also think Sandy that this idea of democratic socialism. Is intriguing because even once you've embraced the finite nature of life as something positive and that earth could be heaven, I've come to realize that this life cannot be sustained by yourself or by focusing on yourself only. We are facing a climate crisis, wage suppression, housing is becoming increasingly unaffordable, healthcare issues. You cannot solve any of these problems at an individual level. You need collective action. You need people to come together, to organize, to struggle together. Even if you want your cities to become more walkable, something pretty basic, right? If you want better public transport, if you want cleaner air, all of this requires collective action. Our people and planet can only survive through organizing and mobilizing around causes. All right, so before we wrap this conversation up, Sandy, would you have some closing thoughts or some book recommendations for anyone who'd like to you know look into this topic at a deeper level? so i would I would definitely anybody who's interested in existential um philosophy is 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 a good sort of um starter. I would recommend the Myth of Sisyphus by albert camus. it's It's a really uh, it's quite an accessible book. and it's it's quite short, so it's it's not like one of those massive tomes like from John Paul Sartre, uh, for example. That can be you know, you know like huge doorstops almost. Um, a matter of death, uh, sorry, a matter of uh, yeah, a matter of death and life hmm. by Irvin and um, Mary uh, Marilyn Yalom. So this was uh, a book that they wrote together while she was going through her terminal illness, right. and they wrote sort of alternating chapters, and that's a powerful book you know how sometimes people say that oh, i couldn't put the book down it was just so engrossing right. well i had to put it down at least five times because it, it became too overwhelming wow um, but, but what it did for me and i managed to in, uh, interview Irvin Yalom about the book which was a huge um privilege and honor for me but i am um, one of the things that i realized is that book to, to anybody who's got any interest in relationships and how they work and how they could work read that book it is so powerful um man's search for meaning by victor frankl that that's another one that's just a, an absolute powerful and captivating read there's a book by the author christopher pike p-y-k-e it's called sati s-a-t-i Right, And it was the first book that I read. I think I was about maybe 16 when I read this book. Um, I don't know if it's still in print, but if you can get a copy, I would highly, highly recommend it. Um, it was one of the most transformative books I've ever read, and it made me cry at the end. I, I'm talking streaming tears wow. at the end. Um, and I've since, I remember at the time I bought, I think, 11 or 12 books. Thankfully, you could buy them for like, I don't know, 10 cents <laughs> at a time so um but if you can get that book absolutely and the final one i would um recommend which you can get uh anywhere is a book by mitchell album uh, mitch album and it's called tuesdays with maury 
and, and that's another book that talks about relationship and the importance of living life intentionally, that we can live in ways sometimes where we take time, we take people, we take the privileges in our health far too much for granted. Um, and in some ways, life is going to teach you um you know why taking stuff for granted is not a good idea um and it's important to pay attention to those lessons but tuesdays with maury kind of does a lot of the heavy lifting for you and it's a great read it's very accessible very enjoyable uh that's, that's something that, that, that's a book that i've read i think maybe eight or nine times in total on that note thanks sandy thank you for joining me today it's really been a wonderful conversation it's always a pleasure to be on your show and I, I certainly hope it's not the last time we do it. Absolutely. That was Sandy Clark, licensed counsellor trained in existential therapy. If you missed any part of our conversation, you can also check us out on podcasts. We're available on the BFM app, bfm.my, or pretty much wherever you get your podcasts from. I'm Dashan Johan and this has been Today I Learned, BFM 89.9. You have been listening to a podcast from BFM 89.9, The Business Station. For more stories of the same kind, download the BFM app.